So let's read Mark 9, 14. And when he, and when you see that he in the beginning of a sentence, in caps, that's Jesus, and when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and in the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, and there's a verse you want to memorize, highlight, underline, circle this week. Check this one out. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out with tears, O Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Father in heaven, we come desiring a word, the living word. We come desiring a person. And we don't know how it happens, Lord. But when your word is presented and your people are present, and we come desiring to hear from you, you speak. That's just what you do. Do it again. In Jesus' name. Amen. There was an accusation made against me this week that I have to address. Somebody in the congregation said that I make too many references to DC superheroes and not enough Marvel superheroes. Deeply offended by that I was. 
But that's okay. We'll even the score this week. Not necessarily. One of the actors from the recent multi-billion dollar Avengers movie was recorded on Twitter in making a political comment saying, war is never the answer. Now, it is everything that I can not to make political or somewhat religious controversial posts on social media, Facebook, Twitter. I try to control myself. Some of you do too. Not all of you I follow. <laughs> but on Twitter, as I read this man's statement, I troll. Yeah. <laughs> as I read this man's statement that said war is never the answer, I had to tweet back, and I usually don't tweet at all. I'm usually old, so we do Facebook the older folks. And so I tweeted back to him, I said, well, how can you say that war is never the answer when you make movies that seem to depict the fact that war is the only answer, and that there has to be war? The message isn't consistent. It's kind of like what happened to Oprah Winfrey back in 2012. She tweeted about a new Microsoft Surface and how good the product was. The problem was this. As she tweeted about the Microsoft Surface, she tweeted it from her iPad, which is the Microsoft Surface's number one competitor at the time. You get the point. And the point is this, is that are we buying what we're selling? And we're only going to buy what we sell when we believe in it. Now, if I went on a no-salt campaign, those of you that know me wouldn't have to be at the dinner table with me more than 30 seconds to say, what a hypocrite. Because the first thing I do before tasting my food is grab for the salt shaker. So the message that I would be giving wouldn't be consistent with the message that I'm living. And if we can go there, then you probably know where he's going already. As Christians, is the message that we're proclaiming well, is it the same as the message that we are living? You see, because what can happen is, is that when our actions and our, our words are inconsistent with what we say we believe, we wear the title Christian, but people are putting us under a microscope and they want to know if you believe what you say you believe. You see, there are some celebrity endorsements that you look at and you're like, well, this person, like Chuck Norris. I believe that this man has a total gym under his bed. All right, I totally believe that. It's like when I see Chuck Norris using that, this man knows this piece of workout equipment. I believe he has it. But there are other celebrities, perhaps, that you would look at him and say, oh, I don't know. You know, do they really use the thing that they say they use? There was a piece of workout equipment that came out years ago. Got a door, got a gym. And I think one of the uh, UFC fighters, uh, Randy Couture, is that his name? Okay, Randy Couture was using this got a door, got a gym. Now, Randy's big, and he's cut. And my question was this, was like, did he get that big and that cut simply by having this got a door, got a gym, and this little piece of elastic that's coming from his door? No! I didn't believe that for a second. I do believe that Chuck Norris utilizes the total gym. But the point is this. Are we buying what we're selling as Christians? The fruit of the Spirit, we say, is love, it's joy, it's peace. Am I living it out? And can people see that in the storms and in the struggles of my life? Do they see something that's consistent? 
When you look at these people on screen, are they the same off screen? Is the message, if, they're, if they have an anti-gun message, are they always doing action movies where they're always packing? That's the question. Whether or not we believe what we say we believe will be evident to a watching world. And let me tell you something, when you wear the title Christian, the world is watching. You see, the disciples run into a crisis of belief today in our passage, because it's all about faith. That's why we've titled the message Impossible. All right, we're stressing the possible, because what we'll see later is that there's a man that says, Lord, uh, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Jesus has told him, listen, to he who believes, all things are possible. And so that's the gist of this message. It's about faith. It's whether or not you believe what you read and whether or not you believe what you read is going to be evident to those that are closest to you, to those that are watching you. So we're going to start breaking down the passage with verse 14 again. And it says here, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. What happened? So there's, there's this dispute between the disciples and the scribes, and immediately when they saw him, verse 15, all the people were greatly amazed, and they were running to him, and he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? So the first thing that we're going to see today, number one of seven quick points, is about faith and dispute. Faith and dispute. There's a dispute. Because here's what's happened. Apparently the disciples went to try to cast out a demon, and they had one of these moments. They have one of these moments where, okay, here's this young man. He's foaming at the mouth. He's gnashing his teeth. There's nobody that's doubting that this young man is demon-possessed, that he has a demon. And the disciples have probably done one of these things. Okay, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. No, okay. All right, John, you try it. Okay. You're the disciple that Jesus loves, so you do it. Okay. Okay, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. Nothing. Peter, go. You know, and now they're going down the line, and these guys are not able to heal this guy. And now the scribes are going, see, see, I told you he's got no power. I told you that these disciples and that this self-proclaimed rabbi who was a carpenter, uh, I'm telling you that he's got no power. So the scribes are bringing contention into the scene. The crowd is sitting there starting to doubt. The disciples are saying, why can't we do this? And what you have is a dispute that has started between everybody. Now, perhaps you've had this moment, maybe, maybe like the disciples, where you sit out and you said, you know what, I'm going to go out in this life today, when I wake up today, I'm going to give them Jesus, like I never have before. I'm going to give my family Jesus. I'm going to give the people in the workplace Jesus. I'm going to give everybody Jesus. And it doesn't take you long before what happens is, is that you kind of blow it. All right, and it doesn't happen, and it seems like you're disconnected. All right, and it reminds me of that scene in Christmas Vacation where Clark Griswold calls his family outside, and they're all gathered outside in their pajamas, and what he's going to do is he's going to have this Christmas lighting ceremony because he has 250 strands of 100 individual bulbs per strand for a grand total of 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights. Drum roll, please. He looks to Ellen, drum roll, the family's sitting there, anxious anticipation, the neighbors are driving by, they think the whole family's nuts, and he puts the cord together with the other cord, and you remember what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. Why? 
Because the wrong switch is on. The switch is on. He's not connected to power. He's not connected to the power, so he looks the fool. Maybe that's happened in the Christian life where I went outside in my own strength trying to say, okay, I'm going to give him more Jesus today, but I wasn't really relying on Jesus at all. I was more relying on myself, and because of that, what I have is I've entered a conflict. Now, whether or not you're successful in the conflict and living out your faith or you're unsuccessful, whether or not you blow it, as the disciples kind of did, or you're living it out and, and people are seeing great power through you, you're going to have conflict. You're going to face dispute no matter what in your faith. Anybody that sits here and tells you, listen, if you're living out your faith, you're not going to experience conflict. They haven't read the book. Any of it. Because anybody that's read the book from Genesis to Revelation sees that it is a book jam-packed with conflict for people that are living out their faith. So we see faith and dispute. Because they go together. When you're trying to live out your belief system in this world, and if you're doing it right, and if you're living like Jesus, if the world says, if Jesus said to the disciples, listen, if the world hates you, believe me, you, they hated me first. If Jesus says that, and someone isn't upset with you or doesn't hate you for trying to live out your faith in this world, then you might not be living it out. And so there's faith and dispute. Now, maybe you've never tried to cast out a demon. Maybe you've never tried to heal somebody that was sick. Maybe you've never tried to raise the dead. Maybe you've never tried to do these things. But listen, to simply go out and live like Jesus in this world is impossible without the power of Jesus. To love like Jesus out there, it's not possible. There's just too many things going against us. Alright? And what we're too easy to do is to engage in the dispute. We're too quick to engage in the dispute. Social media, you see something kind of like I did with the whole Twitter thing in the uh, in the Incredible Hulk's comment. No, he didn't say that. Uh, it was, but looking at the dispute, I was prompted to engage, but we're too busy sometimes engaging the dispute, trying to live out our faith, and entering into these controversies. And now let me ask you something. How many of you have ever been on social media, entered into one of these debates and say, that was really beneficial to a watching world? Man, somebody's sure going to come to Jesus by looking at this Facebook religious political dispute. Most of the time, no. And so we're spending a lot of energy in those places. But here's the thing. It's like during the dispute, do you see what happens? It's kind of interesting, and it's a little subtle. It says, immediately when they, they being the crowd, saw him, what did they do? They ran for him. It says all the people, listen, they didn't walk towards him. This is cool. All right, during the dispute is the, the scribes and the Pharisees are over here and, they're, and they're, they're duking it out with the disciples. The crowd sees Jesus, and what do they do during the dispute? They run towards him. And you should be the one that they're running toward when they see dispute out in this world, when they see storm, when they see strife, when they see struggle. Are you the person that they're running to or they're running from? 
Because when you walk into the room, they say, okay, here's more strife, here's more struggle, here's more defeat, here's more depression. Or are you the person that's walking in the room and they're saying, okay, this is the presence of Jesus, this is the peace I need at this moment. So they're all running towards Jesus during the diversity, during the adversity, during the dispute. So the crowd runs toward him. You see, during these disputes, usually there's a longing created. And perhaps you found this in your life during any conflict that you've been in. We all have something in our heart that longs for conflict to be resolved. So what are you longing for? You're longing for Jesus. And so during conflict, the best chance of any kind of godly resolution comes by somebody stepping into the conflict and being Jesus. Listen, the crowd is running towards him. Now here's the problem with this. If we say that faith and dispute, that's the first thing that we look at, is it possible that during your dispute we can eclipse the real problem? We can be so busy majoring in the minors and fighting about things that don't matter. When what happens in the passage is this, it says that after they went running towards him, Jesus had asked them, what are you discussing? Listen to verse 17, it says, Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples, and they that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered, and we're going to go back to, and we're going to rework some of these verses, but just for the sake of context, Jesus answered, said, Faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. He fell onto the ground, wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Stop right there. What do we have? Okay, in the midst of the disciples duking it out with the religious leaders, they're kind of duking it out, they're going through the, the dispute, and now Jesus comes in here, and what does he hear? He hears the cry of a father in anguish. A father that is in pain because he's seeing his son throw himself in the fire and nearly drown. And he has his son and he's experiencing hell on earth. What are you arguing about back there again? What's, what's your dispute about, Mr. Scribe and Mr. Disciple? What are you fighting about? Because what happens is this, is that when the main thing is made the main thing, the other things get eclipsed. They're busy having a religious debate. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Doctrine is important. Knowing why you believe what you believe is important. Theology is important. These things are very important. Because it's what you believe about God. And what you believe about God, well, that's going to be seen by how you act and how you live in this world. But there's a moment sometimes when our arguments become petty because there's somebody that's in pain and they're crying out in anguish. And so if the first thing that we saw was faith and dispute, the thing that we see by looking at the Father is faith and desperation. There is a desperate, dying world out there. What are we doing about that? Well, I'm on social media and I'm having a Facebook war on politics or religion or this or that. When there are people that are dying out there. I recently had the blessing a couple of years ago of a kidney stone. 
And so when I look at you and I say, you're going through something, I say, this too shall pass. It's not really words of comfort. You know, I'm sitting there, it's like, this too shall pass, and I'm thinking it might pass like a kidney stone, but it's going to pass. You're going to get through it. You're going to get over it. But here I am, and I'm sitting there, and I am in pain. I'm sitting there in the ER. I barely drove myself to the ER at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And if anybody that's had a kidney stone, you know how painful they are. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, and the doctor's like, well, let me explain to you what's happening. I don't care. Give me something. He's like, oh, you have a little stone, and the stone is working its way through the ear. I don't care what's happening. And then another doctor comes in. Well, you know, I looked at his scan. I looked at his blood work. Perhaps we need to give him this medication or this medication. They're arguing over what to give me in front of me. I'm sitting there like this, this, this. Just, just give me something. Please. Sorry, that's my medical rant. That's over. <laughs> Do you get the point, though? There is a lost and dying world, and we are so engaged in some of the wrong arguments. How many of you have been told to pick and choose your battles? And, <laughs> and we need to. And if anything brings that out, it is pain. And if anything brings that out, it's when your child is in pain. This man's child is in pain. Do you think that he's caring about what the scribes are saying? The scribes are sitting there saying, Sit, both of your master had no power. The disciples are saying, oh, yes, he does. You just wait till he gets here. And meanwhile, this father sees Jesus and he makes a beeline towards him. You see, from the Father, what we see through pain is that sometimes things become very clear through your pain. Now, has God allowed some pain in your life that have all of a sudden made some things, you know what, it kind of clarified some priorities for you. And through your pain, God has used your pain to say, listen, it's time to make the main thing, the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is me. There's a hurting world out there. And what we need to do as Christians is we need to be able to do what Jesus kind of did, and that is to see things with his eyes and to hear things with his ears so that when you're looking at somebody, we're not so quick to judge and we're quick to take a look and to say, well, how did that person get to that place? Oh, believe me. Years ago, I used to be that person. And I'd see somebody on the overpass with a sign, and I'd be the first one to go get a job. That was me. Now sometimes I look and I say, what broke them? What brought them there? And God, how can I see it more like you? Listen, that does not mean, please understand this, that I pull over with every person I see struggling out there and try to do something, I yell. But I ask God to help me to hear and see differently. And that comes as he changes your heart. Now understand this, is that when you hear and see differently, if you try to carry the things that you hear and see out there, it will crush you. The only way that you can hear with his ears and see with his eyes is when he gives you his heart. And when you have his heart, then you're going to know how to pray for him. 
You're going to know how to bring their true problem before him, and you're going to know that their deepest need is him. He's their deepest need. So we learn from the Father about desperation. So through the very first section for all the people, it's faith and dispute. Then there's faith and desperation. But now, the son's ailment, let's take a little bit, let's take a look back at 17. Okay, my son has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at his teeth, and he becomes rigid. Okay, so this is the son's ailment. Now we get a lesson in the son's ailment, and this lesson that before we had faith and dispute, through the father was faith and desperation, through the son's ailment, we get a lesson in faith and discernment. Well, what do you mean faith and discernment, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Here's what we mean. In the Bible, in Mark 7, a couple of chapters before this, we see that there is a young man that has a mute spirit. I mean, that's mute, but he doesn't have a mute spirit. Let me clarify what I just said for all those that are thoroughly confused right now. All right, there's a man in Mark 7 that can't speak, but it's not attributed to a spirit. In the book of Luke, when Zechariah is told that he and his wife are going to have a baby, and Zechariah kind of doubts God, Zechariah kind of doubts God, well, God gives him a mute spirit, and he can't talk. But now you have a mute spirit here, and this mute spirit, well, this is obviously from the enemy. And I hope you get the point that I'm getting at, okay? So you've got somebody that really is just mute, and they have something physically wrong with them. Then you have a spiritual malady. You have a demon to this guy. And then you have God himself gives a mute spirit and shuts Zacharias' mouth. So how do you look at the world? And how do you look at the person's problem? And how do you know what's what? How do you know if this person is having a physical struggle, a mental struggle, it's a spiritual struggle? How do you know? How do you look? And how do you make that discernment? Here it's clear. There's no ambiguity. It's accepted. It's taught that this man had a mute spirit, that there was an evil spirit that had shut his mouth. And it was obvious by the way it's described, it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams, he gnashes at the teeth, it throws him in the water, it throws him in the fire, and it's trying to destroy him. See, that is always one good clue. But we take a look, and it's a matter, again, of faith and discernment. How do you know what's what? See, we're living in a day and age where things are a little different for the church. I spoke to a pastor friend of mine a few days ago, Christian counselor. He says, you know, Pastor John, he goes, back in 92, 93, he goes, when I started Christian counseling, the biggest problem that I would encounter was somebody that had a problem smoking or somebody that had a problem with alcohol or somebody that had a problem with their marriage. He goes, but I made a list of everything that I've heard within the last year. It's bipolar. It's schizophrenia. It's clinical depression. It's sexual abuse. It's neglect. And it's this, this smorgasbord of things that we take a look at and we say, wow, this is so big. This is so bad. Because each person has their struggle. 
And as the church, we take a look at it, and if we just write it off automatically as saying, oh, well, this person has a demon. Do you know that you can hurt somebody like that? If you don't know what you're talking about, and you don't know what you're doing, how do I know firsthand? Because I've been told that my daughter has a demon. What? A demon? Really? Do you know that there are tests that they run on your brain now? They can see things in your brain, kind of like they can in your heart, and kind of like your liver, and kind of like your kidneys. And they can see that there are actual people that are having problems with this part of the brain communicating with this part of the brain. They can do blood work, and they can see that some people have real chemical struggles. Now, here's the thing. There's no part of this that God can't heal. But here's the question, all right? Before you go saying, oh, that's a demon, or that's this, or that's that, you be very careful that you're in tune here. Because the Bible says this, the man without the Spirit does not understand the things that come from the Spirit because they're foolishness to him. The converse we've always said is true. The man with the Spirit will understand the things that come from the Spirit. So if you're in tune with the Spirit, again, during this day, they're not saying, okay, well, is this person, is this mental illness, or is this a Spirit? They're not asking that. It's clear, and it will be clear to the person that's in the Spirit what God is doing. And so there's faith and discernment. Now, the closer you are to God, the more you're growing in your faith. And as you're growing in your faith, God is giving you this discernment. You might be able to look at a situation that you could look at before, and you could say, this is a spiritual struggle. As a pastor now, for a while... Forget how many years. Uh, there are things that I would have written up before and said, well, this is this. And now, it's like after so many years, what I'm learning to do now more than anything, and I pray you're doing the same, is when you see somebody struggling, saying, God, show me. What is the core of their struggle? Where are they really at? Where are they at, Lord? Now, Jesus addresses the issue, in this case, comes in verse 19. It says, Jesus answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. All right? And so if we've learned from the people, we saw faith and dispute, we learned from the Father that it was a it was a lesson in faith and desperation, and from the Son it was faith and discernment. Well, now there's another lesson that we get here, and this is from the disciples. As Jesus addresses the unbelief that has contributed to the lack of healing in this particular case, and this particular case, what we'll say here is that this is faith and disbelief. How do they even go together, you say? Faith and disbelief. The Savior sheds light on the problem. How could they not, in the name of Jesus, if Jesus said, listen, you have power over every spiritual struggle, you have power to go out there and heal, after all the things that they'd seen, after all the power that they'd witnessed, some of the power that they'd exercised, how could they fail here? And Jesus addresses it. Faithless, perverse generation. And listen, if Jesus says that the problem is faithlessness, guess what? The problem is faithlessness. He's the physician that never gets it wrong. 
When he performs the assessment, it's always right, 100% of the time. Some of you have had physical ailments and you've gone to this doctor and they've said this, you've gone to this doctor, they've said that, you've gone to this doctor, they've told you something entirely different. But in this particular case, Jesus says, no, this is the problem. And when he gives his assessment, well, his assessment is on 100% of the time. One of the reasons that we're going through this book uh, on Wednesday nights is because the assessment brings it right back to God's word. The struggle is right back to God. What's the, what's the real struggle that's going on in the church today? It has everything to do with having gotten away from this and trying catering to that. And that's the real struggle. That's If we're to assess it, listen, Jesus himself in Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven assessments that he does of seven churches, and in every case, guess what? He's right. When he assesses the problem of a situation, so if you're going through something right now and you're saying, well, I'm going through this struggle, have you gone to the physician and said, okay, what's the core of this? What's the real issue here? Because the real issue here is faithless and perverse generation. Well, now he doesn't sound very Jesus-like, does he? That doesn't sound Jesus-like. Faithless, perverse generation? That's not the Jesus that we're accustomed to. I mean, is he the same God of the Old Testament? Oh, you betcha. But he will call things as he sees them. It's a faithless and perverse generation, and the core of the problem is unbelief. Listen, in 1 Kings, we're going to go to this passage in a moment, 1 Kings 18, there's a mighty prophet named Elijah. You've heard of him. And Elijah is given this task to confront hundreds of prophets of Baal. And he goes out to Mount Caramel, and these guys are all under King Ahab and all these prophets, and, and Elijah goes out there in the power of God, and he challenges them. You offer your sacrifice to your God, I'm going to offer my sacrifice to my God, and let's see whose God is more powerful. You guys go first. So the prophets of Baal, what they do is they set up their little altar, and they put their bull on it, and they're crying out to God, and Elijah's kind of making fun of them. He's like, because he doesn't hear you. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe his ringer is off. All right, maybe he's sleeping. And then, okay, now it's my turn. And now he douses his altar with water several times, makes it impossible. And what happens is that God sends fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And after that, Elijah nearly single-handedly slaughters all the prophets of Baal. Victory. A God-given, supernatural victory. That's 1 Kings 18. But I want you to turn with me just for a moment, because it's one chapter later in 1 Kings 19 where Elijah has a total meltdown. And here's this great man of God, this amazing prophet, who's been provided for supernaturally, empowered supernaturally. And now it says here in 1 Kings 19, it says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, 
and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed, listen, and he prayed that he might die. Did we just read that right? Elijah, the great prophet of God that just had this major victory on Mount Carmel, now he's sitting there under a broom tree, praying, God, take my life. I've had enough. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And we'd say this is so sad if we ourselves had not been here. If we hadn't had those moments where we went to the church and, oh, we believed, and, and the disciples saw Jesus feed 15,000, and they saw him walking on the water, and they saw him raise the dead, and they saw the, you know, the three disciples saw the Mount of Transfiguration, but now they've had a great faith fail. Look at Elijah. He's having this immense faith fail. He's living in unbelief, despite the fact that God had revealed himself to him so mightily. How many of us have been to that place? Where it's like there's one day where it's like, oh, victory in Jesus. And then the next day it's like, kill me, God. And it's a joke, but it's not. Because it's the core of the problem. It's faith and disbelief. C.S. Lewis depicts the problem. In his book, The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis writes of the great fictitious Narnia through the song of Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus in the book. The creation song is clearly intended to reveal the majesty and glory of the character of Aslan who represents Jesus. As in Genesis 1, it is a grand call to worship, but there was one in the book, Uncle Andrew, who would not hear it. The consequences were staggering. Listen. When the great moment came and the beasts spoke, he missed the whole point. The beasts were speaking. For a rather interesting reason, he missed the point. When the lion had first begun singing, long ago when it was still quiet dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song so very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring, as any lion might do in a zoo in our own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. I love that. The trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you already are is that you often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but a roaring in the song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beasts spoke, instead of hearing their voices, he heard only barking, growlings, bangs, and howlings. Do you see what a tragedy unbelief is? How the children of Israel experienced that God said, listen, go to the land of Canaan. 
seized that land after he delivered them from the delivered them from the Tower of Egypt. Do you remember what happened? They sent twelve spies over. And the twelve spies, they looked at the land, and ten of them came back and said, Well, it's a beautiful land, there are big grapes there, everything looks really cool, but there are giants there, so we can't go. Two, Caleb and Joshua said, No, we have to go. We we gotta go. But the people were so afraid that it prevented them from going into the land that God had for them. It's all what you believe about your God. Joshua and Caleb said, listen, if God promised us the land, he's going to give it to us. It doesn't matter. We, we just got to go. We got to step forward in faith, even if it doesn't look realistic. But the other ten influenced the crowd so much that God honored, listen, God honored their decision to not go in the land. And I don't know if that hits any of you, but it hits me. Because when we're not acting in faith, God will honor our decision to stay in your comfort zone. And so there's faith and doubt that we see from the disciples. Uh, faith and disbelief, I'm sorry. And now listen. Because they, when they come to Jesus... Jesus said in verse 19, he said, Faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Listen to what Jesus says. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. They brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Do you think any of the disciples even bothered to ask the question? You see, here's the lesson we get from the Savior, and it's one of faith and deliverance. Bring him to me. How long has he been like this? I don't know about you, but when you're in a situation where there's struggle, don't you like it when somebody actually comes off as caring. We sat at the funeral home the first day that we were making arrangements for mom after she had passed. There was one guy that was somewhat sympathetic, but another guy came in with his folder and he said, okay, you guys haven't paid this and you haven't done this and you haven't done that. And I looked at him and I said, my name is John and her name was Annabelle. Jesus, how long has he been here? How has he been like this? What's going on? Jesus knows the answer, but Jesus shows a compassion and a concern here that perhaps was not part of the disciples' MO at that moment. What you see is genuine concern, faith and deliverance. Jesus says, bring him to me. Guess what? The Bible tells us, tells you that it's his desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How serious do you take that? That it's his desire to deliver a dying, hurting world, a sick, ailing world. It's his desire that there's a world out there that has not confessed him, that doesn't acknowledge him as Savior, and you have the truth, and yet we don't tell anyone. Faith and deliverance means, listen, you know that you have the only thing that can save them. It's been given to you by grace. But you have the only thing that can help a hurting, dying world, and that's the power of Jesus Christ. And what's his desire? Bring the hurting to him. Sometimes I want to give you my experiences. Sometimes I want to give you advice. I want to give you counsel. But if I don't give you Jesus, then we give you nothing. 
Because Jesus is the one that is the answer. It's faith and deliverance. You see, he's the answer. There is no true healing ever for anyone apart from him. And all healing comes from him. Can you imagine the heart of this father praying to me? For the disciples, and maybe the father's lost a little bit of hope, but he sees Jesus and he says, okay, all right, I'm going to go towards him. Jesus doesn't fail him. He brings him to him. Listen, he's going to give you what you need in your situation. You're either going to get healing or you're going to get strength to deal with what you're going through. But either way, he will show up if you get out of the way. And that's faith. It's getting out of the way to let him do the things that only he can do. And Jesus gives him the answer. He says, the father says, from childhood, often he has thrown himself both into the fire and the water to destroy him. What is it like for a dad to see this? To see your kid destroying himself. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. And Jesus said, here it is, gang. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. If you can believe, all things are possible. Say that with me. If you can believe, all things are possible. Now, somebody please in this room say it like we mean it. If you can believe, all things are possible. Does it say all things are guaranteed? No. But when you enter the relationship with Jesus, things that were never possible became completely possible. A relationship that was beyond repair, there was a possibility now that there could be healing. With him, all things are possible. The situations, and that's, as a matter of fact, we have a book through a book full of people that are in impossible situations, and it always seems to be that that's where Jesus does his best work, if you can believe. If you can believe, all things are possible. And you believe that it's possible because you know he loves you. And because you know he loves you, you have faith in him. And because I know he loves me, there's not one situation in my life that I walk around saying, okay, well, I don't think this can happen. Or is there? You come into this room today. Do you believe all things are possible through Christ? Oh, you'd say yes and you'd say amen. Most of us would say yes and amen. I assume that's why you're here. But perhaps a lot of you can relate to what this man says next. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And all God's people said, Now, because all of a sudden you knew how we could relate to it. Because all of a sudden you knew that I do believe in God. I believe he created all things. I just don't necessarily believe that that thing in my life, I don't think he will do it. Because he didn't do it yesterday. And I'm 47 years old and he hasn't done it for 47 years. And because they say that he could come back at any time. Yes, I believe that he could come back at any time. But let's face it, in my 47 years and however many days he hasn't come back, and for 2,000 years before that he didn't come back, so the chances that I believe that he's going to come back today kind of slim to none, but hey, I'll live like it and I'll say that I believe it, but do you really believe it? Because if you really believed it, 
people would see it. If we really trusted him, people would know it. People would understand it. Because some of us, we have these areas in our life and we say, okay, listen, I believe that God's in control of my finances, so it's nothing for you to throw something in the box. Because I believe that God's in control of that. But when it comes to my relationship, I'm going to hold on to that a little tighter. Because I don't want to give that up to God. Because, I mean, I believe he can do this, and I believe he did this, and I believe this. But I don't believe him in this particular situation because I'm not willing to give it up. There was a great quote that I read from Elizabeth Elliot this week, and it said this, To pray thy will be done, God, I must be willing, if the answer requires it, that my will be undone. And let me repeat that for anybody that was taking notes. Elizabeth, to pray thy will be done, I must be willing if the answer requires it that my will be undone. How many of you here today have the faith to say, listen, if it means that the things that I want and the things that I desire have to go by the wayside so that you can do your will, because I trust that your will is better, how many of us have the faith to say that prayer? Okay. How many of you here today want to say, God, if you need to crush my plans... Crush my plans. See, with the Father, with the disciples we learned about faith and disbelief, with the Father here, it's a balance that we see between faith and doubt. And everybody here would like to say, I have no doubt. Faith grows. And if you come here and say, well, it's, this, is, this, this is an area I didn't know that I was uh, struggling as much as I did when I came in here today. I thought I had more faith than I did, but I really, if you were to ask me, I really don't believe that this loved one is going to get their healing. And let's enter a conversation now, because now it becomes really challenging. What if you've been praying for this thing for so long and it just didn't happen? And you want to pray believing, but you also don't want to set yourself up. You want to pray believing, I want to pray that God can do this, I believe that he can do this. Even though he hasn't done it for the last ten years that I've been praying for it. And I don't want to get my hopes up too much. Listen. Do you want to know how to solve that one? Make your greatest hope. Yeah. Everything else will fall in place. When your greatest hope is a person and not the outcome to a situation, when your greatest hope is a person, then what you're going to find is things kind of fall into place in ways that you never expected. We're going to finish up about an hour. <laughs> we've got one more point, gang. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Deaf and dumb spirit. Notice this. He says, deaf and dumb spirit. There are schools of thought in Christianity that says, well, if you want to cast out a spirit, you've got to get to know their names. 
Okay, let's read the Bible. Death and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand. Don't you just love the tenderness of Jesus? He just picks him up and he takes him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Stop right there. It's the very last point that we're going to make, and it is about faith and divine authority. Faith and divine authority. Doesn't it strike any of you as strange that when you look through the Old Testament, do you see instances like this of demon possession? What you see in the Gospels, do you see it in the Old Testament? Like this? As often as you see it in Jesus' ministry? No, you don't. Spiritual warfare at this moment was exacerbated, it was highlighted, because the Son of God was walking the earth. His children are still walking the earth. So the demons are still out there, and they're still real, and we're still fighting not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that are not of this world. But when Jesus was walking the earth, well, it was like everything came out. Why? Why did God allow it? Because the demons can't do anything that God won't allow. The demons came out because God wanted to show that through Jesus Christ, we have authority over them. You have authority as a child of God over demons. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But we're walking around getting the snot kicked out of us, sucking our thumbs. Pardon the expression, but that's what we're doing so often. The enemy is coming with both barrels. And even in this situation, Jesus says, well, well, you're only going to get this one out by pray and fast, prayer and fasting. What does that tell you? What is that? That's submission to authority. That's submission to authority because I'm under his name in the battle. And if I'm not under his name, I'm going out there with no help whatsoever. Because Hebrews 12, 2 says that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. The author of our faith, that means he is the authority. Author, authority, if I'm not going to him, if I'm not covered by him, then I'm not walking in faith at all. And so prayer... And that is the communication with God. And fasting, separating our, ourselves from the things of the earth, denying ourselves of the physical so that we can seek the spiritual because we acknowledge his power and his authority to overcome the worst of what Satan can throw at you because there's nothing he can throw at you that is not allowed by God and there's nothing that has been thrown at you spiritually that he cannot defeat when you give him leeway to do it. When you yield and get out of the way and let him fight the battle that you can't. Do you believe that all things are possible for him who believes? I want to close you today with a story of Charles Blondin. How many of you have heard of Charles Blondin? Anybody? Good. Can you imagine a tightrope and as soon as I tell the story, you will. Can you imagine a tightrope stretched over a quarter of a mile? 
and spanning the breadth of Niagara Falls. The thundering sound of the pounding water drowning out all other sounds as you watch a man step on the tightrope and walk across. The stunning feat made Charles Blondin famous in the summer of 1859. He walked 160 feet above the falls several times back and forth between Canada and the United States as huge crowds on both sides looked on with shock and awe. Once he crossed in a sack. Once stilts. Another time a bicycle. And once he even carried a stove and cooked an omelet across the tightrope. On July 15th, he walked backward across the tightrope to Canada and returned pushing a wheelbarrow. The Blondin story is told that it was after pushing a wheelbarrow across while blindfolded that Blondin asked for someone in the audience participating. The crowd was like, do you believe he can do it? Yes! Do you believe that he can go across there in that wheelbarrow again? They'd seen him do it several times. They'd seen him do it blindfolded. Do you believe that he can do it? Yes, I believe he can do it. Okay, who's willing to get in the wheelbarrow? I think you get the point. Dan, we got a book of wonderful stories. So these stories are put here not just for enjoyment, not for entertainment. They are put here to teach us and then to encourage us that whatever it is that you're going through, God's got you. Some of you are struggling to experience him because you're not willing to get in a wheelbarrow. What is the area that he's calling you right now to step out in faith? Some of you are doing it. But what is the area right now that he's calling you? Don't look at me. Look in the mirror at this time and say, okay, what is he asking you to do? In Blackaby's book, Experiencing God, one of the great things that he talks about in the book is that during the church business meetings, uh, it was always very good and necessary to take a look at stewardship and what we were doing with what we had. But Blackaby said, what is the thing that we're only going to be able to do if God steps in? Where's the area that we're stepping out that we're only going to be able to accomplish if God steps in? And maybe you see it for us as a church right now. We're stepping out in faith. But I ask you as an individual, what is he asking and calling you to do specifically in your life that you're only going to be able to do if he steps in and finishes? Why he start? I hope that challenges you. And when you struggle with that challenge, go back to Mark 9, 23. Because to the one who believes, all things are possible. Father in heaven, we just thank you again. In places, Lord, that we are so limited because we've limited you. Oh, Lord, did we really dare limit the one who created all things out of nothing? Dare limit you. 
We pray, God, today that if there's anybody in this room struggling, Lord, that you would assure them of your presence, that they would be reminded of your goodness, and that they would be in awe of your sovereignty. You're in control of everything. There's nothing that's got past your notice. Nothing gets past your watch, God. Thank you. And before we close, we're going to close with a song today. Um, and uh, and if you're here today and you've heard this message and you said, okay, the challenge has been issued. If you're somebody that needs prayer today, or if you yourself want to come up and you've never received Christ as your Savior, if you're sitting here and you say, well, you know, I walked in here not knowing if I was going to heaven, you can leave knowing that you know that you know, because our entrance to heaven is not based off of our ability to get it right. It's based off of his grace and what he did. Not what he did. By grace you've been saved through faith. And so if you want to receive Christ as your Savior today, so I ask you all to stand right now. Um, we're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And if you're one that has not abandoned everything to follow him, or if you're in a season in your life where you said, you know what, I know him as my Savior, but I've been doing things my own way, and I want to give him everything. I want him to have all of it. If that's you, if you want to be prayed for today, then I invite you to come up as the church sings and prays. But if you have never accepted him as your Savior, never repented of your sins, and asked him to be your Savior so that you can have a relationship with God the Father through him, if that describes you, you can leave here knowing that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. By repenting of your sins and asking him, because we're not promised tomorrow. This is the day. This is all we've got. 